right, so welcome to the latest episode of Uncharted Territory, the podcast where we discuss the psychedelic revolution, society, consciousness, and perhaps a little bit on, well, anything really. I've got Mike J here today, the honor of having Mike J here today, author, historian, friend. It's the first time I've actually seen you in the flesh after some three years of being on the phone and in correspondence. Yeah, hi, Matt. It's uh, great to be here and it's great to see you too. Thanks very much. Yeah, I'm obviously like super grateful. I didn't know who you were, apologies, until I heard that you'd very kindly suggested to folks at Thames and Hudson that a book that I think you might have been asked to write up for them wasn't to your taste at that, at that point in your career. So you suggested that I could do it and... I went ahead yeah. and did it. No, I was super busy. I'd just done a book with Thames and Hudson. I'd just done an exhibition at uh, Welcome Collection called uh, Bedlam, The Asylum and Beyond, which is about the history of madness and psychiatry and stuff. And I'd done a big illustrated book with Thames and Hudson for that. And uh, they knew that I'd written quite a lot of books about uh, drugs. So they had one in mind and came to me. I was doing other stuff, but... Uh, I asked around and uh, my uh, old mates at uh, Transform, shout out to them, Transform Drug Policy Foundation, talked to them and uh, old uh, drug journalist mate, uh, Mike Power, who turned out to be a mutual mutual friend. And I said uh, said to everybody um, who would be good for this, is there anyone you can recommend? And uh, your name popped up very emphatically. Yeah, well, amazing, really. Mike's actually a really good friend of mine and continues to be and obviously Danny and Steve and yep. everyone that transformed Martin. Yeah. Really, really good people. So yeah, I'm grateful for that. Um, you, the, the book you'd done just before for Thames and Hudson was high society. And I, I ended up reading that and I realized in hindsight that I'd already read Mescaline, your book on peyote, which perhaps we can discuss later. Amazing, sure. amazing research. But high society is kind of just all about how we've always been a high society. When did you realise that? I started writing about uh, drugs quite a long time ago, um, back in the 90s, really. And uh, I also kind of coincidentally around that time uh, uh, met up with a... Um, an academic who is a medical historian at the at, at the Welcome uh, Collection and Library. And uh, yeah, the more I started to write about drugs and the more these questions just came up about like, where did these drugs come from anyway? And who were the first people to take them? And what did they make of them? And what were the first experiences like? And, uh, uh, you know, how did they make their way out into society and culture? And that was quite an open field at the time. I mean, there was a little bit of academic drug history, but it was all very top down. You know, it was all about how the, um, you know, drug control systems got put into place and how the, uh, you know, notion of addiction was first formulated. And it was nobody was really interested in the drug user or the experience or the culture. So I started writing about that and um, uh pretty much at that point sort of became a kind of go-to person for that because there was not a lot of people doing that at the time. I mean, it's, you know, we think back in the nineties now and we think that that was the, you know, that was the period when suddenly drugs were everywhere and it's true and they were, but you wouldn't know it from uh, like, you know, the mainstream media. 
I did that for a while and it was just full of great stories that nobody had done before. And then, uh, yeah, that was when the um, Welcome got in touch with me in about 2006 or seven or something and said, we want to do an exhibition about drugs, uh, but we don't quite know how to do it. And, you know, can we talk to you? And uh, I said, yeah, sure. You know, my advice would be simple. Just um, do it without you know, the health warnings and the moral messages, you know, because you couldn't really mention drugs in the media at that time without saying how dangerous they are and don't do drugs, kids. And a drug story was basically an addiction story or a crime story or, uh, you know, so I said, um, let's just do it like we do any other subject. Let's just ask what are drugs? Where do they come from? You know, how are they used in different cultures around the globe and so on? Uh, so I put that exhibition together and uh the welcome were great actually they said that sounds fine and i said but i've got to warn you it's going to look totally different from everything else that's out there if we just do it like objectively you know on its own merits they stuck with it and it was controversial and it was popular and then uh thames and hudson wanted to do a book uh based on it so yeah that was high society and that was a chance for me to um you know, take a global view and a view that went all the way from prehistory to the present. My idea was to, uh, I wanted to do an illustrated book because uh, um, when you say the word drugs, then sort of images pop up in people's heads that you don't have any control over, you know. And But if you can accompany it with images and, you know, here's kind of like um, some old... Um, uh, Indian guy smoking an opium pipe and uh, here's somebody in the Andes chewing some coca and uh, you know here's a kind of scientist in a laboratory you know you can you can sort of start to open the subject up with all these different images and make people think about it differently and make different connections so yeah that was uh, that was high society and the, the exhibition and the book. And this kind of thread has led you into your latest book Psychonauts and the Making of the Modern Mind where you you go on to kind of illustrate how there's a rich history of, of drug use, especially among the intellectuals and upper classes of the 18th, 19th centuries, and that experiences with drugs led to kind of transcendent experiences that have been at the bedrock of maybe even massive discoveries. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was... Uh... That's what I found about the the history of drugs. It was kind of hard to explain just how different things were before the 20th century, because I assumed when I'd started that, you know, drugs had kind of arrived in the 1960s and before that they'd always been illegal or nobody would known about them or whatever. But then I realised part of the problem was this word drugs, which um, didn't, you know, in the word in the form that we're using, it didn't exist before the 20th century. And uh you know, it, well, it, it did exist, but it was just a general term. It just meant like all medications, you know, like we still have in super drug or whatever. And the sense in which we're using it, you couldn't really use it because most of what we call drugs now, you could just get over the counter in pharmacies, you know, until the 20th century, like um, cannabis and cocaine and heroin and so on. So yeah, there was literally like a cough syrup, wasn't there, called heroin. Yeah, yeah. Heroin is a brand name. It was like, well, as we know, diamorphine is its chemical name. Heroin was what, uh, um, you know, biopharmaceuticals called it as a cough medicine and it was uh, sold over the counter. Uh, but then kind of back in that time, um, 
The other thing that I'd found really interesting looking at this over the years was that, um, of course, you know, doctors and scientists, as well as kind of, um, you know, writers and philosophers and anybody uh, trying interested in drugs and what they did to the mind, of course, the way that you would start doing that would be by taking them yourself. And that's just so, um, so kind of beyond the pale in modern science. You know, we sort of modern psychedelic science, it's all about the, um, you know, it's, it's it's all about the neuroscience and the, you know, physiological correlates like brain scans. And, uh, you know, we're all trying to deduce what the experience is like from looking at all these physical markers. And, uh, you know, there isn't room in science anymore to say, you know, well, I took this drug myself and this is how it changed my sensations and perceptions. And uh, this is how I felt about it, what it felt like. And that's just makes for such a more interesting science. And then, of course, when you look back at that, then all these huge towering figures of science from that era, you know, Sigmund Freud, William James, you know, turns out that they all self-experimented with drugs. You know, self-experimentation was like a, big thing in science at the time anyway scientists were always doing gonzo stuff like you know passing huge electric currents through themselves and kind of inhaling toxic gases so actually drugs were the least of it you know people find it shocking now that scientists used to take drugs and you know used to take them in large doses to get a real sense of what they did you know heroic doses often um but uh you know that was kind of the obvious way to proceed. And uh, I think it made for an amazing era in science. I mean, obviously, if you want to know what drugs do in your brain and, you know, all the neurochemistry, then the science that's being done now is more interesting. But if you want to know what the experience is like, you know, the, the 19th century science is so much richer than what we've got today. Yeah, there's this new study coming out of Stanford on Ibogaine, and they've done some MRI tests and I went to a presentation where they showed the preliminary data the other day, and it seems to be kind of having a de-aging effect on the brain by reducing, I don't totally understand it, white blood cells. So, yeah, you'd never really guess that from a psychedelic trip. I think for all that, you know, just to be clear, for all the kind of neurophysiology and all the stuff of dealing with, uh, you know, pathologies and brain diseases, knowing what goes on in the brain is incredibly valuable and incredibly interesting. But in terms of the drug experience, I don't think um, it adds an enormous amount. I mean, what's fascinating is how science keeps on rewriting it. I mean, back in the 90s when taking... Uh, MDMA, for example, you know, all the stuff about uh, your neurotoxicity and you're burning out your serotonin receptors and you've got holes in your brain. I was just looking at that today that on Oprah Winfrey, there was this kind of, you know, big picture of like someone with huge holes in brain, like a Swiss cheese. And this is what happens when you take MDMA and like, you know, in 30 years time, all these ravers are going to have advanced Parkinson's. And now, you know, the science is, um, you know, I saw that study from the University of Kent that just come out saying, well, you know, they're looking at ravers from the 90s and saying how beneficial it was and how <laughs> pro-social pro it was and how valuable in terms of social bonding and trust and neuroplasticity. You know, so science just keeps reinterpreting, uh, you know, these experiences according to, uh, you know, the sort of uh, uh, beliefs and approaches and attitudes of the day. But people are coming around. I mean, Oprah had Roland Griffiths, the departing head, who, mm -hmm. who sadly sadly got a terminal illness, and we wish him all the best. Um, John Hopkins on on her sofa mm -hmm. the other day, and 
yeah right. people are coming around but i mean when when did this kind of happen when like when did we begin kind of balking at drugs after there's kind of a long if disputed in in certain certain parts of the world history of drug use and that entered the pharmacopoeia and we were kind of using them routinely and suddenly at some point in the 20th century we've just changed the mood music yeah that's right i mean there's you know in psychonauts which is all about the 19th century like i said the word drugs wasn't there uh the other word that wasn't there was um psychedelics you know and i think those two words both appeared in the 20th century and they both have very different meanings you know from the very beginning the word drugs was all loaded with these negative meanings you know it meant uh, dangerous drugs and drugs that you shouldn't take without a doctor addictive drugs often meant foreign drugs you know very associated with ethnic minorities and then it meant kind of illegal or criminal drugs so drugs was always a bad word that everyone shied away from and um that's why I think the word psychedelics when it came along in the 1950s was incredibly useful because, uh, you know, it was um, it was loaded with all these positive connotations. You know, it was all about personal growth and mystical experience and self-actualization. And, uh, you know, that gave people a language for talking about drugs in a positive way. And I think we've still got those two different views, you know, which kind of emerged from different points, you know, uh, in our history and, uh, you know, different kind of periods of society. And I think they're both still in a kind of arm wrestle. And I've noticed, like, particularly in the psychedelics word, world, people avoid the word drugs, you know, it's all medicine or sacrament or whatever, you know. So, uh, and I think what happened, you know, in the last 10, 15 years is, um, um, it's a bit crude, but you can always follow the money. You know, if you look at someone like David Nutt, for example, who was working within institutional science and finding it very hard to do the studies that he wanted to do or to say anything that wasn't kind of negative, you know, when he left ACMD and, you know, it's, it's he stepped away from that institutional funding. And by that time, you know, there were all these... Um, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and uh, Bitcoin billionaires and, uh, you know, there's whole new sources of funding there. And that's I think, they, you know, people like Maps and you know, the leaders of the, you know, this new psychedelic wave have really have really ridden that, you know, that's kind of uh, uh, a whole different type of funding and type of interest that's kind of really captured the public imagination and become much more vital. And everybody wants to know about the amazing things that psychedelics can do. Totally. And I mean, it's easy for us to, I guess, sit here and be like, oh, like, how on earth could these governments and these forces have conspired to stop people expanding their minds? But the, the fact of it is, is, and as you wrote in Psychonauts, is sometimes they do have really disastrous effects. Some of the, some, you, you, you profiled a few of the people back in the day that kind of met their end through opium and cocaine. And there are fears, I guess, that even today with with psychedelics, possibly especially ketamine, we do need to maybe be a little bit more careful than, than we're being in the kind of espousing of, of these apparent panaceas. Yeah, I mean, I think more recently, I'm always struck when I speak to uh, people who uh, were young in the 60s and were part of the kind of, you know, countercultural psychedelic movement. 
just how many people, uh, friends of theirs, kind of died or didn't make it, or were, you know, there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of casualties. And um, what's it? I mean, what's interesting about the nineteenth century is there was very little in the way of regulation, you know. And I think that's like a lot of the reason why prohibition came about, you know, alcohol prohibition as well as drug prohibition was because suddenly all these drugs were kind of appearing that were new when they were on the shelves and each one was stronger than the last and there were more of them and they were more widely distributed and nobody knew what was in the bottles because they didn't have to list ingredients and everybody panicked about where it was all going, you know, so uh, I think... Um, I think what we need to think about today is a kind of uh, really good, solid regulatory environment. I think that's where organisations like Transform are doing really valuable work, you know, because there's a very libertarian strand in the psychedelic movement, you know, which is all just anybody should be allowed to sell anything to everybody. But we've kind of been here before. And, uh, you know, that's why... Uh, um, you know, it's interesting to see all the different models that are starting off with cannabis, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, percentages of um, CBD and THC and kind of, uh, you know, health advice. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping that as things move on, uh, then people think about ways of building trust on this. And I think some of that's come from the dark web also. You know, if you look at uh, drugs on there, then it's... Um, you know, loads of people are checking the sort of synthesis and kind of giving, you know, comments and saying, yep, this is good. This is what it says it is. And, uh, you know, there's a good trust network there, which works to a certain extent. You know, obviously it can still, there are loopholes and people can exploit it. Uh, but I think, uh, I hope we're seeing the sort of coming together a lot of, um, you know, good regulatory models that are going to, you know, uh, try and uh, minimize the harms that are coming our way. Yeah, exactly. And Roland Griffiths, who we mentioned earlier in a recent New York mm -hmm. Times interview, he was saying that the medicalization model is a way to not scare the powers of be in a way of the 60s that associated psychedelics, drugs, often with a kind of insurgent political movement. I mean, obviously it's convenient for them to have done that. And I'm sure it's far more complicated than that. But yeah, the whole medicalization thing is a way of this time around, like kind of working from the system far more. I think, yeah, that's right. I, my problem with it is that it's medicalization, but it's also monetization. You know, it's very much... Uh, uh, you know, there's the spirit of how do we make money out of this? And I think that sent us down a particular kind of route. Uh, I'm still don't really understand why you need medical professionals, you know, to administer psychedelics. I certainly don't understand why you need to have licensed pharmaceuticals. Um, so I think the effect of this is to um, kind of limit uh, medical resources, you know, effectively limit them by money. They'll be great for a small number of people who can afford them. But, uh, you know, all this kind of hype and build up means that there are literally millions of people who are now, you know, convinced that psychedelics are what they need uh, for whatever reason, you know, mental health or, um, you know, the next stage of their life or whatever. And, you know, the number of those people who are actually going to, you know, go to some you know, licensed medical practitioner and pay hundreds of dollars an hour, you know, for this kind of clinical based therapy. To me, I, I can't see that being more than a tiny percentage of the people who want them. So I think ultimately, yeah, the medical model is helpful in terms of guidelines. And you could argue that uh, doctors are our sort of shamans in our culture. 
uh, you know, and uh, that they're kind of, uh, you know, the gatekeepers and, uh, you know, guarding the entrance to this. And I think there's some truth in that. But uh, I think the demand is bigger than that. And uh, 20th century, 21st century clinical medicine is too limited to uh, to really do all that on its own. Yeah, I mean, I certainly see the wisdom in having a trained therapist with folks for their at least their first few deep psychedelic experiences. And then I've personally seen sometimes a lot more benefits when I've had like one-on-one -on -one kind of integration therapy afterwards too. And as, as certainly with kind of 5-MeO, Bufo or, or Ibogaine, it, it's potentially dangerous to just do it by oneself. But right. I, I think on, on, on large part, for these kind of mushroom journeys that are being sold for like four thousand dollars, five thousand dollars a go, it does seem does seem kind of crazy just 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 for the journey. Yeah, I mean, I I grew up and started taking psychedelics in the sort of you know post punk era, really, with that sort of DIY aesthetic, you know, where you uh, and sort of ethic that you would just kind of do stuff yourself and find it out. So, you know, all my early acid and mushroom trips were, they were steep learning curves, but they were also ordeals. And I felt I came out the other side of them like, wow, you know, that was really something, you know. So personally, a guided trip feels a bit weird to me and often a bit creepy, but I understand that other people are coming from different places and guided trips are more valuable to them. But um, certainly, uh, Doing um, uh, doing this in a Native American context, uh, you know, I, I'm very persuaded by the idea that you know this is not, you don't want to be put in a in you know in in, in a clinic in a bed with your eye mask on, having your New Age music played to you and having the experience spoon fed to you. You know, it's an ordeal. It's supposed to be an ordeal. You know, it's hardcore and it goes through the night you know, and it's going to be very challenging. And I think that's a lot of the therapeutic benefit is when people come out the other side of that and go, wow, I did not think I could do that. I can obviously do a lot more than I thought I could. I think that's a large kind of component of the sort of healing power of psychedelics. Yeah, Robin Carr Harris has got a paper on this kind of pivotal mental state. And when one might reach a fork in the road or in the river, and yeah, you've got to make that choice either just to stay the same or descend into madness or, or to face face your shit. Um, yeah. And I think that's what um, the sort of Western clinical medicine is very bad at because our assumption always is that patient just lies there and has, you know, medicine done to them. You know, the idea that you might have to kind of meet the doctor halfway or that you and the doctor are going on a journey together, you know, those are completely alien, completely foreign, you know, to our idea of uh, modern medicine. And, uh, you know, I think that's, uh, uh, you know, that's an important, you know, part of the dynamic. And I don't see, unless like, uh, unless psychedelics really radically change how we conceive, you know, modern Western medicine, which might be a very good thing. But unless that happens, um, I think, you know, that uh, that kind of guided trip is only going to be, um, is only going to work for some people. I think, you know, a lot of people are still going to want to do this experience on their own or more likely, you know, with their friends, with people they love in a place that they love, you know, which is really, you know, in my view, uh, you know, the best context for it. Yeah, I certainly prefer doing mushrooms by myself after sitting in various 
um, ceremonies and, and groups. But I think that's the interesting thing about this latest psychedelic renaissance in that we have been for a long time passive recipients of healthcare. And this is obviously very convenient for the, let's say, pharmaceutical industrial complex. Mm -hmm. And it's these concerns that a kind of purple pharma or psych pharma is kind of just replacing that. And this was the essence of, of the protests of folks who interrupted Rick Doblin's closing speech at, at the MAPS conference. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I think I mean, we do have our other models in Western culture. I mean, when you look at, um, you know, the sort of military veterans, you know, treating themselves for um, PTSD with, you know, in groups, um, ceremonies with, uh, well, ayahuasca or MDMA. I mean, that's very like, you know, NA or AA or Narcotics Anonymous, that kind of group therapy, you know, and that's something, you know, that emerged spontaneously in a Western culture in the 20th century. And, uh, you know, I think in a way that's really what we need. I mean, what you need, you know, the proposition is, uh, and, and you see it when you see films of that happening, it's like, okay, we really understand your suffering because we've been there ourselves and we're still going through it and we're all healing ourselves. And, you know, we're going to take you with, with us on the journey and you're going to join us and we're all going to get better together. I mean, to me, that's a much stronger proposition than, you know, lie here on this couch and take this pill and do what I tell you. And, yeah, you know, here's, and here's the bill for 4,000 bucks, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's why it's quite interesting, the whole psychedelic church movement in the US. Mm. I mean, a couple hundred, if not more, have, have popped up. Some of them have even created their own psychedelic, their own sacraments. And yeah, I read, your, I read your piece about that. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, these guys have, are feeding, you know, 5-MeO substrates to psilocybin mushrooms and yeah to protect their their medicine their sacrament they've created a church and now they're putting on events hiking microdoses and doing online church-esque services and integration circles and yeah it's a really interesting project yeah and i think that kind of um therapy is really effective but that's not the kind of thing that the the FDA can assess and decide whether or not to license the medicine or not. You know, this is something that's very completely outside that kind of medical model. And, uh, you know, in, in, in so many ways. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's certainly going to be part of, uh, you know, how we integrate um, psychedelics into Western culture going forwards. And I think it's difficult for folks in the UK to really understand the scale of changes in the US and, you know, these ayahuasca churches that are operating more or less in the open. I mean, obviously you do, you do have these sorts of ceremonies in the UK, but they're, they're far, they're far more kind of underground, even, even though folks are getting more and more confident, but yeah, America's just a crazy place, isn't it? It is. And it's also more people go to church. There's more of a church culture. I think it's more natural for a lot of people in America to, um, you know, place this in a sort of uh, religious and communal context. You know, my sense of um, British culture is that uh, it's much more kind of um, outsidery and independent and loads of people are doing really interesting stuff, but, uh, you know, in a less, less organized way. In the spirit of the Druids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, whatever but, uh, that was. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, on the topic of, of 
the US and you mentioned the Native Americans earlier, your book Mescaline kind of charts the history of what you call the kind of first global psychedelic, was it? Because Mescaline was perhaps the first to be in the lab. Yeah, it was. It's the first psychedelic in the sense that, you know, when Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond, you know, came up with the term psychedelic, they were talking about mescaline and LSD at that point. LSD had been recently, uh, you know, relatively recently synthesized for the first time. It wasn't a natural substance, but mescaline had a well, it had a long history in Western culture. It was like isolated from the peyote cactus back in the 19th century. And of course, beyond that, in non-Western cultures, uh, you know, its use went way back hundreds and thousands of years, you know, with, with the San Pedro, the Huachuma cactus in the Andes and the peyote in Mexico. So um, I'd written a lot about the history of drugs and uh, most psychedelics are relatively recent arrivals on the scene. So... I wanted to write a book about mescaline because it had so many different lives before it became a psychedelic. It had been used in so many different ways in indigenous contexts, in Western contexts, in science and in art. And, uh, you know, all, it had all that. It brought all that, you know, uh, to the party when the sort of psychedelic movement really got going. And it was a way of um, also writing a book that was kind of split kind of half half between you know, the indigenous history and uh, sort of Western history, because uh, normally you get like a little bit of, you know, 10% of one and 90% of the other, but I kind of wanted to do those two properly in parallel and give them both their due. Yeah, it's fascinating for the Wawarika community in Nayarit in Mexico that the, the medicine men and women of the peyote have this kind of unbroken lineage of of knowledge and wisdom in their tradition because they were lived in the mountains and thus weren't really subject as much as others to the Spanish conquests. So they've preserved so much knowledge, but you, you were able to bring so much together in that book. It really is. Yeah. Like a real font of knowledge. I mean, how did you go about the research? Was there any, and was there any field research? Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks. If you look at the, indigenous use in uh, Mexico, you know, certainly people like the Huicholes, you know, deliberately left and up and off to, you know, the mountains and the canyon country specifically to avoid Spanish influence, you know, so that's, uh, you know, I th you know, there is a lot of that that's quite unbroken. Uh, I had, um, yeah, I kind of had the budget for one, um, one sort of field trip to research that book. And, uh, there were several I wanted to do. Uh, I would have loved to go to um, uh, Mexico to spend some time with the Huicholes. And uh, I have I have been up to that part of Mexico before. Uh, and um, but uh, what seemed to me really important for the story was the Native American church, which is a much more recent story. It's kind of more like a new religious movement. You know, it sort of started probably about the same time as Mormonism. But that's really the um, the hinge, that's the fulcrum between kind of millennia of indigenous tradition and kind of the beginning of Western engagement with, um, you know, peyote and mescaline, because it was kind of in the 1890s in the West, particularly in Oklahoma, uh, where um, the uh, 
uh, Western doctors and scientists first encountered uh, peyote and took it back to laboratories and did human trials with it and isolated mescaline from it. Uh, so that was kind of the story that I really wanted to um, to nail. And um, I was uh, uh, and I made contact with a Comanche group, an amazing Comanche group in uh, Oklahoma uh, called Sia, which means um, feather in their language, the Comanche language. They have uh, amazing eagle medicine. They kind of uh, rescue and breed and release into the wild, um, you know, eagles. And uh, they have a lineage that goes back to Quana uh, Parker, who was the chief of the Comanches, who was the, you know, great original sort of uh, apostle, if you like, of the peyote religion. He was uh, one of the people who took it round to loads and loads of other tribes and was uh, he was an amazing figure and uh, heavily identified with, uh, you know, <clears throat> the beginnings of peyote religion uh, before they made it into a church, which they did, you know, really essentially for legal protection. Uh, so, yeah, the field work I was able to do was to go out to Oklahoma and um, visit various people, but also spend time with um uh, seer and understand their Comanche lineage and they incredibly generously invited me to a sort of peyote meeting and all night one so I was able you know to have that experience that was fantastic. Wow that, that's a real honour to have been invited to such a ceremony such an event. Yeah they were super generous I mean that was uh, you know when I first um, made contact with them uh, you know they were uh, you know, because I'd, I'd learned from uh, uh, from other people that they had amazing records of that period and knew stuff that nobody else knew. And I kind of found they had a website and I emailed them to ask about it. And, uh, you know, first of all, they said, no, we do have a lot of this history, but it's the history of our people and it's for our people. It's not for like white historians. And I was kind of like, um, OK, cool and backed off. And then uh, they kind of emailed a couple of weeks later and said, all right, we've looked at some of your videos on YouTube and you seem to be culturally sensitive. So, you know, let's uh, let's talk about what you're after and had a long and, you know, very you know amazing, you know, very emotional and powerful kind of email exchange with them, which was not the way to do it. But, you know, I was in London and they were in Oklahoma, so it was great to uh to meet up and uh you know amazing that they uh invited me in and uh, we've kind yeah. of stayed in touch i've done quite a lot of work with them since and with their organization and uh yeah we're still talking about all kinds of stuff amazing and there's that prophecy the eagle and the condor isn't there yeah that there would be kind of 500 years of separation between the indigenous and the caucasians but then around the turn of the millennium there would there would be a renewed kind of spirit of uh, collaboration in 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 search of a better world. Yeah, and they, I mean they also read the eagle on the condor as uh, making connections with uh, indigenous people in South America and the Andes. You know where the condor has a very similar um, cultural importance down there that the eagle does for the for the plains Indians in the north and. Uh, so the eagle and the condor coming together is also about that because the uh, Native American tribes are nations in their own right, uh, then they can form diplomatic relations with other nations. So like the Comanche nation, you know, has ties uh, 
with Spain, you know, going back to that shared history in uh, Comancheria, as it was called, you know, the area of the Comanche Empire, you know, where they fought the Spanish. Uh, but they also have uh, relations with uh, people like the Plurinational Republic of Bolivia, uh, you know, who are also um, have got, uh, you know, all the indigenous um, uh, uh, components and environmental components to the new constitution that Evo Morales introduced. So yeah, Eagle and the Condor is also about uh, indigenous people kind of up and down the uh, American continent, uh, making contact with each other again. And while San Pedro does kind of grow throughout a lot of the continent, Peyote is pretty much restricted to the area of the Arizona desert and northern Mexico and this is why there's concerns in the Native American church about conservation that big farms are like setting up shop across Mexico over peyote land and doing like tomato big harvests and other people are using kind of ever more agricultural methods to bring up the peyote so some churches in fact the big the biggest organizations have said like you know we only want to keep it to ourselves and unless specifically invited, I guess, in the case of, of yourself, you know, white people should, should keep their mitts off our, our medicine. Definitely. I totally endorse that. Uh, the conservation pressures on peyote are extreme at the moment, not least because the Native American church is growing incredibly fast. It's got, who knows, 250,000, 300,000 members. And as you say, uh, the peyote gardens where they've traditionally picked this are shrinking and there's a small number of kind of, of uh, peyoteros you know families who are licensed to sell to uh, um, the native american church you know but all that is kind of under severe pressure before even you know all the kind of new white western converts to psychedelics start coming in so um you know in that sense i think the san pedro the wachuma is an amazing gift is an amazing resource because it grows um it grows everywhere i mean i've uh, um driven up and down the peruvian bit of the andes and when you get to that 2000 meter altitude you know you're just going through mountains and valleys where san pedro is just growing everywhere to the horizon and um people have always um used it there and harvested it there i mean people up in the high altiplano they kind of plant it as windbreaks around their houses but uh, there's also quite a lot of um uh san pedro wachuma medicine people take it down to the coasts it's sold in the markets uh and it's a, such a contrast to peyote because peyote is tiny and very slow growing on the desert floor and uh Wachuma is really fast growing, really easy to cultivate. I mean, I've been cultivating it for many, many years, and I think a lot of people are doing that now. And um, I think that's definitely uh, the way to go for kind of uh, people who are curious about sort of mescaline and, and cacti. I'd uh, I'd really recommend, um, you know, sort of looking at San Pedro and getting to know it well and uh, and growing it yourself. Yeah, a family friend once gifted me a incredibly large san pedro plant it was almost as tall as me but mm. i didn't really i mean this is about five years ago i didn't i didn't know what it really was i never mind how to like boil it up so sadly the plant kind of went to waste during several moves right of, of flat and house but yeah well what 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 is it give me give me a bit more insight and how do folks go about kind of preparing it 
I, I, I remain ignorant. Right. It's, uh, I mean, it's easy enough to get hold of, as I say, and um, you can grow it. I mean, you can grow it in the UK easily enough. It needs to be indoors in winter. It won't tolerate a frost, but otherwise, you know, it's a cactus. It's out in the under the sort of tropical sun with no rain for nine months a year. So it's pretty tolerant. Uh, it has a lower mescaline content than um, peyote. So peyote, traditionally, people dry the buttons and eat them or powder them down. Uh, but uh, uh, the um, uh, people who work with the um, San Pedro or um, Wachuma medicine tend to chop it up and boil it and uh, make a kind of a drink out of it. Uh, so yeah, that's what you can do. If you've got a big San Pedro like you had, you can, uh, well, you can cut it off and leave the stump because once you cut it off, that will pop, that will shoot like one or God, often two new San Pedros will appear. Uh, you can also cut the top off and uh, you know, let leave that for a few weeks to scab over and then replant it. So it's like for every one that you harvest, you get two, you know, you can keep one and pass one to a friend and the rest of it, um, you boil down and uh, you prepare, you know, and uh, there's lots of different ways of doing that. Just like a little, a, a, a little look online will give you all the varieties of um, possible preparation. It's, um, it's pretty bitter and uh, it's not great to get down. Uh, it's, uh, and it gives you like a little bit of nausea, but nowhere near as much as ayahuasca. You know, ayahuasca is definitely like a purge, uh, mescaline and, uh, you know, the wachuma is like uh, something that sits there in your stomach. And it kind of also gives you those really nice, warm, pleasant, tingly feelings that you get from mescaline, which are a bit like, uh, well, I mean, that's where MDMA comes from. Obviously, it was when Alexander Shulgin did his first mescaline trip, he went, wow, you know, this is amazing. I'm going to spend the rest of my life figuring out, you know, <clears throat> if there are kind of, uh, you know, uh, synthetic variants of this. And that's what he did in his huge book. Um, you know, Pical is like dozens and dozens of different um, things that are essentially mescaline derivatives that include um, MDMA and 2CB. Uh, so, you know, mescaline is like that compared to say um, acid or mushrooms or the tryptamines, it has that really nice embodied feeling. Um, it's very warm and it's quite euphoric. You know, it's also kind of nauseous, but it's more of a kind of body load and more of a body trip. Well, thanks very much for the, yeah, the fascinating group <laughs> report. I mean, yeah, it just illustrates, especially with folks growing cannabis everywhere and even poppies growing naturally, which we spoke about the other day, the futility of this war on drugs, because you just, nature is an irrepressible force. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's not just, um, you know, the nature that the war on drugs kind of can't cope with. It's like, um, you know, that's where we've got, you know, tons of um, fentanyl coming out of China or whatever. There'll always be, um, you know, the stuff that is reasonably easily synthesized in a laboratory as well. And because it's, I mean, obviously, with the the fentanyl stuff, it's mostly people that are already dependent on certain drugs and are just, and you know need a high to stop withdrawal symptoms or are looking for an ever greater one. But yeah, humans have just got an un un well, how do you even say it? irrepressible desire, something fundamental to 
alter their consciousness, whether it's a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. Although I, I guess I haven't actually altered my consciousness today. I've been drinking this chicory drink, which is like a right. kind of coffee coffee replacement, and I haven't had any sugar today, so I'm feeling feeling actually quite sensitive. okay. Yeah, so you're pretty straight edge today. Yeah, yeah. I think um, pretty much every culture kind of finds a space or a niche for one drug or another. And uh, some of them, you know, like um, tea or coffee, you know, for example, or tobacco, conquer the world. You know, they become huge industrial commodities and they're available everywhere. Others stay in their own little niches, like kind of cat chewing in, uh, in Yemen or East Africa, for example, or um, coca chewing, you know, in the Andes, which is fantastic. You know, if I could, uh, you know, I mean, that would be the one. Uh, it seems incredibly hard to do, but that would be the one I think really, really easy step you could take in terms of drug reform would be to make, um, you know, coca and um, herbal coca products legally available. I mean, it's very hard to convert them into cocaine. It would just be cheaper to buy the cocaine, you know, but uh, I think coca, you know, sort of particularly chewed is um, a far superior stimulant to coca. Uh, uh, to caffeine and i think if it was available and a lot of people's uh you know a lot of people would find that it fitted into their uh, into their life you know very nicely and uh all the coca farmers up and down the andes could sell legally instead of being forced to sell to gangsters at gunpoint you know that would be a great thing uh but yeah some of these um uh some of these drugs, some of these plants kind of find their global market and some stay in their little local niche. And they all have um, fascinating cultures associated with them. I mean, I, that's why I find that so fascinating. It's such a great way into a culture to just see how people do this and see what they do. You learn so much about what makes the culture tick. Yeah, I've been really interested with Kava Kava recently from Vanuatu, Fiji, mm -hmm. that, that region of the South Pacific like one or one one cup one like potent cup i mean it's sold in kind of western trendy eateries and specific bars in in american non-alcohol bars in a more potent um formula than than is served in the south pacific where it's typically kind of drunk overnight in kind of maybe up to even a dozen kind of like weaker brews but i could see that as being a potential replacement for alcohol I mean, it's that kind of tipsy feeling where one feels kind of more. I mean, when one's inebriated, you you're gonna you're gonna like have all these delusions. But I think it's like a more genuine, actual sense of kind of connection and flow without losing the cognitive abilities. But yeah, maybe slurring your speech slightly, but not waking up with a headache. Yeah, definitely. I went, I was lucky enough to spend a bit of time in Vanuatu um, many years ago, and I spent pretty much every evening drinking kava. Uh, I have to say, I've never found anything here in the West, including like the trendy um, kava bars. I've never found anything quite as good as like the freshly grown kava. You know, it has to be fully tropical to grow it and really fresh. People, you know, by the uh, you know, mid late afternoon, everybody's kind of like looking at the sun going down and thinking, oh, time to start grating some carver. And that's where the ritual begins with every, well, all the men um, sitting around grating it up. And then in the evening, you drink it. And uh, yeah, it has a kind of short, but really intense, really feel good. Um, 
buzz you know you get a really great high and after that you feel very relaxed everybody drinks it together in a circle um it's mostly quite quiet people don't sort of uh, talk a whole lot um it's very companionable it makes you feel quite sleepy there's a sleepy islands anyway so you're off for an early night and you sleep really really well so i think it's um you know, it has the potential to be, I'd say, almost like a herbal Valium as well. It's kind of very good for calming and anti-anxiety. Uh, it's very, very good for sleep. You know, you think anybody who has um, problems sleeping would find it very useful. So, yeah, you can find, uh, you know, versions of it here. And, you know, I know that a lot of them are, um, you know, grated fresh and sun-dried and vacuum-sealed immediately. Um I haven't found one here that really did it for me, but I think that's partly just because the culture in the South Pacific in Melanesia where it's used, uh, they've just found, you know, a great way of containing it and a great way of using it. And uh, there isn't really even alcohol or, you know, cigarettes very much there because it's not really a cash economy. Those are all things that have to come from abroad and are expensive. So it's almost like a carver monoculture in somewhere like Vanuatu and it's great it's one of the most amazing sort of uh, um, drug cultures I've ever experienced. Awesome yeah I saw it described once as nature's Xanax and I, yeah. I, I believe it's actually illegal in, in the UK along with Croton which which millions of people are taking in, in the US I mean you can get addicted to, to Croton which is part of part of the issue but mm -hmm. with, with Cava I mean there was like a study with like 30 odd people reporting liver issues i mean some some sad hospitalizations and i, mm -hmm. I certainly hope hope everyone was okay um i don't know if the study reported all of the final outcomes for these folks but that's what spawned a bunch of um prohibitions across europe and it's like well what 30 people have had liver issue with mm -hmm. this this cover i mean 30 people probably die of liver disease every day from from alcohol so it does seem it's very much like these are your drugs this kind of like othering it's definitely that i mean that study that was done in uh you know that resulted in the european ban which showed that there were kind of issues with liver toxicity um there are you know in com in conjunction with alcohol um but of course most people traditionally where it comes from don't drink alcohol uh but, um, you know, that, that study has never been reduplicated. And I think it was used to shut the door on Carver as a product. Uh, French had always had kind of um, pharmaceutical um, preparations of carvine. It had been kind of part of French, French medicine. But I think what happened, what kind of scared the regulators was that it was coming at them at the same time in all these different ways. You know, there were carver bars opening up, which made it look like a sort of recreational, you know, sort of cafe type thing. There were also lots of people using it as a medicine for different things. And it had a kind of spiritual dimension to it as well. I mean, you get that in uh, South Pacific where people, if they want to be on their own after drinking it, can just go and sit on a beach with the waves and they'll hear voices of ancestors. So I think people were looking at it and going, is this some indigenous spiritual thing? Is this a pharmaceutical medicine? Is it a new recreational drug? And all this was happening at once and people kind of panicked and sort of uh, 
locked and bolted the door. And uh, I would really like to see Carver being reconsidered. And as you say, in the States, Carver bars are starting to emerge and, uh, you know, which have kind of, you know, funky sort of tiki South Pacific decorations and you sit around drinking it out of coconut shells, which is how, how you do in the in the Pacific. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, that's right. Exactly. But it's kind of, um, uh, yeah, I think, I've, you know, when you look at those, um, go to those cafes, it's mostly people sitting on their own with their laptops or whatever. It's a kind of, uh, it's not really an intensely social drug. You know, I found in Vanuatu when people want to give good manners to say, you know, this is really, really good carver. Yeah, this is nice. You know, but you didn't want to say much more than that. Yeah, so I mean, I went to a bar. <laughs> I went to a bar in the San Francisco Bay Area a couple of months ago, mm -hmm. and it was a pretty social affair in there. Okay, good. Yeah, I yeah, went I to mean, one in one in Berkeley. I don't know if it was the same one you went to. Yeah, that was it. Was in Berkeley. Yeah, right. Mel That's the one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh wow! No, it, it was pretty sleepy when I was there, but I'm glad to hear it's <laughs> livened up. <laughs> it's an afternoon thing rather than an evening one, I think, because it doesn't go very well with alcohol it doesn't go very well with weed it's quite a delicate high that you can kind of diffuse you know as soon as you sort of uh, layer other stuff on top of it yeah well we, we had a very um kind of bougie evening we went to this spinning class not on a, not on a bike but the kind of arabian dance where oh, you right. kind of stand stand on one foot and propel yourself around like a, like a whirling the... dervish <laughs> exactly it was exactly that yeah um, and then and then we went to this mellow mellow bar afterwards. So we hadn't drunk anything. We hadn't, you know, we were totally sober and had had two of those. And yeah, I mean, I felt amazing. But but, but I was I was ready to go home. Yeah, strong. No. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's very very good vibes. I think. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to see that kind of thing emerge in in the UK. I mean, just like we were saying earlier with the psychedelic churches, like things are really changing in in the US at a far far greater rate to here in the UK. But what what do you see as as the future for kind of drug policy in in the UK? I mean only earlier today, Rishi Thunak, the, the Prime Minister, who we've been calling among friends Rishi Shrumak recently, but he was kind of putting out these tweets suggesting that they'd be like reducing illegal drug use in communities through like drug testing with with pictures of split. What, so are we going around, like, testing people's piss or their hair for, like, cannabis traces on the streets? I mean, it's clearly just, like, fear-mongering made for online to try and paint Keir Starmer or something as some kind of hippie. But, yeah. you know, America's mostly legalised weed now. Like, what's going on? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, our, our Conservative government has... Uh identified drugs as an issue that you know can get their older you know their conservative party members and older voters are concerned about and i think uh, it's heavily politicized in that sense they know that if they start making nice noises about legalizing drugs then all the right-wing press is going to go mad so there's no real you know sort of substantive content there or policy you know there's no real attempt to enforce these laws uh i think generally there's kind of a um a choice that all governments have got at this point you know you can either um legalize and legally regulate 
And, um, you know, but that's hard work. You know, you've got to come up with regulatory regimes and tax structures and people have got to check all this. You know, it's kind of quite a extension of the um, arms of the state, just at the point when the state is, in other respects, kind of shrinking and being brought back. You know, so I think that's the um, that's the righteous and principled way to go. But I think the alternative to that is just to say, OK, we're just going to talk tough on drugs every time anybody asks us about drugs we're going to say drugs are evil and i hate them and they must be stamped out but we're not actually really going to bother to enforce the law you know and then the trouble with that is you end up with this enormous gray area where like you can enforce the law or not so white college kids you know you don't bother to enforce that in the same way that uh you know you in enforce it with kind of uh, ethnic minority kids in the cities um there's lots of room there for police corruption you know lots of situations where people can say um oh well technically you're in breach of the law but if you do this or do that i'll let you off you know so i think um it just in terms of politics, that's kind of bad politics. It's lazy and it tends to, um, you know, corruption. It corrupts police forces really badly. You know, we hear about that very eloquently from like organisations like Leap and, uh, you know, people like uh, uh, Neil Woods here, you know, uh, so it's, worth, it's worth looking at. He talks very eloquently about how, you know, any police who really care about policing should legalise drugs immediately because it's... Um, you know, it's it's so corrosive to, um, you know, the ethics of a police force. So I think that's the choice. I think you can either, you know, do the right thing, which is extremely hard work, or you can be kind of lazy and corrupt and leave this kind of grey area with a huge gap between rhetoric and reality. Well, what they've done is they kind of made illegal laughing gas, which you note does have a very long history of mind-expanding use yeah, but I mean, but I mean, pe people are taking the piss as well, like selling them for like a tenner, and then you know throwing throwing the canisters on the street. Like I see, I see the issue. I see the issue, no doubt. But there's there's bloody beer cans and stuff everywhere anyway, and cigarette butts. Cigarette butts are possibly I don't know worse for the environment because um, small birds can can pick them up. Although I guess bigger birds can also pick up the laughing gas canisters, but we were coming right. out of a day festival at the end of May, and I think the law hasn't actually been implemented yet. But you know, they were they were just selling them, and the police were just watching on. Most of my friends did one, but I I certainly didn't fancy it. I I'm yeah, not really mm -hmm. um, catching the vibe of just you know doing one on on like a street corner at, at ten no, o'clock at night. Exactly. I mean, talk about set and setting, you know. But I think if you know you put your finger on it, I think that's really. It's really a litter problem. What pisses people off about nitrous oxide is all the canisters in the streets. And that's why it's very easy to work up all this moral outrage about them. But, um, you know, but, uh, and, and, you know, and I think the solution should be more regulation. I mean, the idea that uh, Transform proposed, which is really incredibly simple, is just, um, you know, have a 50p refund per canister. So you'd take your canisters back. And if you didn't take them back, then some kid would kind of clean them up and tidy them up. You know, so if it's the litter problem that you're really worried about, uh, you know, there's incredibly easy ways of uh, solving that and dealing with that. You know, it's just a bit more regulation. But I think the reason that nitrous oxide has taken off, you know, is, uh, you know, because it is, um, 
it's really good fun and it's also pretty safe i mean when i was uh when i was a teenager it was huffing glue you know and uh solvents and all that you know that's pretty much disappeared you know so i think what we're looking at is it's actually quite a successful um harm reduction move people aren't stupid people know that uh nitrous oxide is kind of fun and relatively safe uh and it's much better than uh the alternatives and uh you know the scenes that were there before it but we just need some kind of common sense practical solution to the litter problem and as you say like neoliberal governments is kind of just against the tide of yeah giving away powers selling off the state and yeah reducing to a kind of much smaller state in that yeah regulation would just be a massive step in the opposite yeah. direction that we kind of saw in the kind of keynesian policies after the war but you know canada is still you know legalizing and regulating cannabis and colorado oregon uh, and, uh, and a lot of a lot of europe as well you know i mean uh the Netherlands, of course, have been very practical for a while. I mean, their coffee shop policy is a bit messy because it's, you know, uh, it's a bit half league. It's kind of, you know, it's still organised crime behind it. Uh, but then countries like Malta have started to get a cannabis policy together, you know, which is kind of very much state controlled and non-profit and taking the money out of it. And uh, Germany's been looking at that and Luxembourg and the EU is now looking at that. So, yeah, I think we could end up with a situation where pretty much every American state um you know, has legalized cannabis and, uh, you know, pretty much the whole of Europe has. And the UK is just sitting here. It's like Prohibition Island in the middle. So, I mean, just finally, it'd be an interesting note to leave it, considering we're both in the UK, actually quite close to each other in neighboring counties, Devon and Cornwall. Yeah. Kind of what, what explains, what which of our anachronisms does explain Britain kind of dragging its feet on this issue the political structure i guess a lot of a lot of the changes come through the states in in the us and kind of money maybe moves quicker and there's not the same kind of establishment and class interests perhaps in in the same way but i mean europe as as we've outlined is also moving on this and there's a variety of kind of state structures there mm -hmm. yeah no that's definitely true i think about the states, because the federal government in the states has not moved at all, you know, so I think that's much more analogous um, to what's going on here in the UK. But of course, in the UK, we don't have those kind of local government initiatives and propositions, uh, you know, uh, communities can't unilaterally try. I mean, they did. I don't know if you remember uh, under Brian Paddock in London, uh, he kind of uh, created a zone in Lambeth around bristol where the drug laws weren't enforced you know but we can't really proceed very far on that here uh and i think um i mean it's great that things are moving forward in europe but it seems to me that uh we're just in a situation here where a lot of people have tuned out of politics you know the only reliable voting block are old people you know and uh, they're just very very easy to rile up and stir up with stories of new drug panics and young people having fun and being irresponsible and uh uh you know, we've got, we've had kind of, um, uh, you know, and I wish I could, um, I, I wish I could hope that, uh, you know, or believe that, uh, you know, a Labour government under Keir Starmer was going to be, you know, more pragmatic and more adult and have a serious conversation and take on the right wing press and everything. But uh, I'm not holding my breath at this point. Well, 
Let's see what happens. <laughs>